Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Music History Project. Today, we are going to be talking all about the singer, songwriter, performer, publisher, Sam Cooke on the year of what would have been his 90th birthday. So get ready for everything Sam Cooke on the Music History Project. Hello, and welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Mullins. Dan Del Fiorentino. And Ashley Allison. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. That collection is over 4,500 interviews and constantly growing. If you'd like to learn more about the program or view any interviews that aren't featured, visit namm.org slash library. Welcome back, everybody, to the Music History Project. We are super psyched to have the opportunity to highlight one of the careers of one of our heroes, Sam Cooke. What an amazing career this guy had. And what's really super cool as music fans, fanatics, really, you can call us. (laughs) um, We love the opportunity to find the opportunity to highlight somebody like Sam Thanks to the fact that we've interviewed people that were influenced by him, that knew him, that worked with him. So we're going to interweave some of those stories today from the NAM Oral History Program in order to highlight this incredible career. So to get started, we're going to go through a little bit of Sam's early history. So we have a nice setting for all these wonderful folks to talk about their experience with him. Um, Sam was born in 1931 in Clarksdale, Mississippi. He was the fifth of eight children. Um, His parents, Charles and Annie. Charles was actually a minister. Um, He went to the same high school as Nat King Cole. So that's kind of exciting. Um, But before that, they water there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that was in Chicago. His family moved to Chicago when he was only two years old, I believe in uh, 1933. And his career started pretty much right away when he was a kid, when he was six years old. Um, He started singing with his siblings in a group called the singing children. Um, So he definitely had a musical family, a lot of gospel influence for sure. Um, And then fast forward a little bit, when he was 14 years old, he started singing in his first group as the lead singer, and that was the Highway QCs. Um, So he's, I mean, a performer his entire life. Um, Mm. It really started right from the beginning. Um, And his younger brother, uh, LC, was actually a member of a doo-wop band as well, um, Johnny Keys and the Magnificence. So... Again, music was everywhere for this guy. And uh, in 1957, he uh, added the E to his name um, just because he wanted to be, you know, more of an individual. He was starting to sing lead and write his own songs. And uh, that kind of leads us to uh, where he was starting to influence the pop charts. He was bringing gospel music over to the pop scene. And the younger generation was starting to hear gospel music, which was exciting. (laughs) Mm. You know, the one thing that strikes me, Mike, when you're talking is Sam Cooke's feel. You know, it's really hard to describe the essence of a singer who kind of goes way above the norm. And the fact that he brought in so many different elements of different types and styles of music into his own, um, to me, that's the feel, you know, he just, he Mm -hmm. had it. And it's an interesting thing. You said that he was born in uh, Clarksdale, Mississippi, which by the way, has this awesome Delta blues museum. Um, But also who 
other people who were born there just talking about what uh, Ashley said about something about in the, being in the water. John Lee Hooker, Muddy Waters, and Ike Turner were also born in that small uh, town as well. So um, something should be said about that. Um, <laughs> Definitely something in the water or absolutely. in the air or something. <laughs> And, you know, uh, the Reverend Charles Cook, his dad, um, as Mike said, was um, a reverend of, I think it was called the Church of Christ. And um, what some of us growing up in in, in the church music scene, uh, we refer to as sort of the holy rollers of Southern gospel. And what I mean by that very respectfully is very energetic singing and performances uh, throughout the, uh, the um, church services. So uh, imagine all of that, that blues background that, you know, um, drive for music, all of these things are starting to mix together now. Uh, we can start to see this amazing talent really come out and shine, not just as a performer and, and singer, but of course, as an incredible songwriter. Hey, Dan, would you say that they were cooking together? Uh, all those? <laughs> With I the E. Resist. Yeah. Resist. Were cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so let's get started a little bit on this podcast and hear some of these great interviews that we have. Uh, the first interview we have up is with Ellis Hall, uh, who talks a little bit just about the impact of Sam Cooke, uh, on his career and just in general in, uh, society. And you actually get to listen to a little bit of him singing, uh, one of Sam Cooke's songs. So start off with some music here. <laughs> awesome. So here is Ellis Hall. Sam Cooke was one of my big influences listening. That's the sound of the men working on the chain gang. And I remember listening to that melody and how sad it was, but yet it made me feel something inside like, like I was, I was dancing, you know. It's like, wow, how do I do it? How do I explain that, that uh, dichotomy, as it were, the opposites? I'm feeling so intensely happy hearing the music, but at the same time, the sadness. That's really the first time I cried when I heard a song. You know, give me water, I'm thirsty, my, my work is so hard. When I heard that line, I don't know why, but I just started crying. And, and mom came in and said, what's the matter with you? You know, I said, nothing. I just... The music, there's no way to explain. I, I'm just essentially like a six-year-old kid, seven-year-old kid hearing this. And it's like, I don't know why I'm crying, but it makes me feel so exhilarated to hear that, but at the same time, so sad. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, to this day, that is my thing because I, I really tell folks all the time, I am honored to be the vessel. What does that mean? The vessel means... Everything is coming through me. When I leave myself open to receive that, uh, get on the train for the audience or get out the way because it's coming through. There's no denying the power. <laughs> <laughs> so did you, did you sing in church as a kid? Not like people would think. You know, it's so funny because I would think, yes, Jesus, love me. And I'd be singing so loud. And my mom would say, shh, you can't sing that loud. But I didn't know any other way. And like I said, my mom swears I, I was in the womb dancing, singing, and playing. To show you how life 
is always going in an amazing circle. We talk about Sam Cooke today, right here in the present. Mm. One of my dear friends was, and although he's gone, he still is, Bobby Womack. Mm. Bobby, when he was 15 years old, got hired by Sam to be his guitar players. Mm. Now you think about that. 15 years old, and you're asked to play with one of the most incredible soul gentlemen and soul slash pop. I mean, Sam wrote the song, You Send Me. That changed pop as we know it. And he was one of the first black men to own his own publishing. Hear me now. Publishing and writing, that's astounding. Back in the 50s when a lot of folks were taken advantage of. So the fact of, I don't know who he worked with. I know uh, Bumps Blackwell, I believe, was a co-producer or producer with him. But to own and have that kind of power, woo! <laughs> and uh, just to hear him sing, I was born by a river. I'm singing softer because I don't want to blow your mic. <laughs> but he, you know, to hear that, yeah. hear that just, oh. And he told Bobby Womack, when Bobby came over to his house, Sam said, Bobby, I'm afraid of this song. And Bobby said, oh, what do you talk about? It's just an amazing, great, great song. He said, no, man, it's like I'm predicting something. And a few months later, he was gone on. Mm. So when you think about it, I get chills thinking about it. It's like, we don't know, but I learned ver very early, and I hope I teach others this. Love is the opposite of fear. Fear nothing. Let the love flow through. It doesn't mean the challenges won't come, but keep walking the love path, and it will get you through anything. So once again, that was Ellis Hall on the Music History Project, giving us a little performance. Always good to start an episode with a performance. Um, and Sam Cooke, I mean, what else is there to say? <laughs> <laughs> well, what's really cool is uh, Ellis started us off because he was influenced by Sam. I didn't know the man, but was totally into his music and completely influenced. And one of the reasons Ellis... Uh, started his own career was because of the people he listened to, including Sam. So I I, I love that because, you know, at, I think at the heart of Sam Cooke to me is the expression of music. And he would, I think, greatly appreciate the fact that we're remembering um, some of his influences and some of the charges that got him excited about being involved um, with music. And I think what's interesting, and I, um, I pause for a minute because I think it's important to talk just a little bit about the origin of the quartet gospel groups. Um, they really started off being called Jubilee Singers, and the very first actually goes way back to 1871 um, when Fisk University in Nashville was looking for some funding to continue their operation. They started basically um, as a small college for freed people of color, and uh, it was very difficult to get funding. There were some people that were definitely helping with that, but the, uh, the guy who was in charge uh, was George L. White, and a shout out to him uh, because he was a guy who got together uh, some of the students that he heard singing and said, Heck, if we put these guys on the road, 
we could get generate a little bit of financial revenue for the university, which is exactly what happened. And they actually toured not just the United States, but also into Europe. And the songs that they played were mostly spirituals and uh, songs going way back in all of their backgrounds that were very meaningful to them and religiously based, um, but not charged necessarily with the same sort of energy that we think of some of the quartet singers of, let's say, the 30s and 40s that was a direct influence on Sam Cooke. But nevertheless, these are the people who really pioneered this concept of taking um, sort of the, the uh, story of the Bible, putting it to music and getting people involved, getting them energized, you know, with two lead singers and two backup singers with altering uh, rhythmic approaches. It was very compelling, really exciting. And uh, some uh, Dr. White called them the Jubilee Singers. And uh, for my money, that was really the, um, the foundation for what was to come. And what was to come wasn't necessarily uh, chart-topping hit recordings. We don't really know all of these quartet names as well as we know the big bands of the 30s and 40s and the singers of the 50s and the rock and roll stars. But during that entire stretch of 60, 70 years, these quartets were all over the place and uh, very popular amongst their audiences. Uh, it includes uh, the Golden Gate Quartet, a uh, fantastic group, uh, the Dixie Hummingbirds. If you guys ever have a chance to listen to some of these groups, they had harmony like you would not believe. Uh, I, there was a great line. I was trying to figure out who said it because I wanted to quote them, but uh, I, I couldn't find it. I just know in the back of my mind, um, somebody once said of the Dixie Hummingbirds, they were so tight you couldn't put a piece of paper in between their harmonies. And that was a great <laughs> line um, because they were all in sync and they all had that same passion and that same drive. And, and I think as um, quartet singing progressed in the 40s, and 50s, I think the energy level really started to take off. Not that it wasn't there before, but it was much, in my estimation, much more showmanship as well. You know, it was grabbing the audience, getting them involved, you know, not just shaking the rafters, but getting people off their butts and dancing. Can I say that? Okay. Um, so, um, you know, Sam grew up in this exact environment. In Chicago, the quartet singers were extremely influential uh, to the point where, of course, we can list a long, long list of performers, Aretha being on top of that list, uh, who were influenced by this style of singing. And I want to make sure I say that um, today there are still a lot of great quartet groups in Chicago alone. I mean, they're all over the place, but Chicago still has the Harmony Boys, Rapture. Um, I think In Touch is still performing. These are great groups that continue that same tradition. And I think it's important to say that. Um, well, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> and I'm just, I, I want to say that um, along the way, about 1926, I believe, in Trinity, Texas, there was a young man who had an idea of starting his own group. Um, that was Roy Kane. And his was called the Soul Stirrers. Uh, the Soul Stirrers, of course, is the group that later Sam Cooke uh, joined and became the lead singer and also became the lead songwriter. What's really cool about what Sam 
did when he joined this group and uh, at the age of 19 in 1950 was um, like other members of these groups in the past wrote their own songs. He also did this um, while incorporating some of the early uh, spirituals that go way back, you know, 50 or 60 years before that. So I think that's important to say because those traditions were very important to him. He was keeping with that. And I think there becomes a struggle in his career about 1957 when he decides that he wants to at least try to record some secular songs, um, mm -hmm. non-church related mm -hmm. songs. When I was growing up, the word secular was a really bad word. That meant that it wasn't God's, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, message. And, um, and that was in the 70s. I can't imagine what it was like in the early 50s for Sam growing up in that environment and trying to stretch out a little bit and saying, hey, you know, I want to do something different here. Um, so his first recording was actually under a different name, Dale Cook, because he didn't know how it was going to go. He didn't know <laughs> if his reputation was going to be ruined as a gospel singer and if his solo career in pop music wasn't going to work out he wouldn't have anything to fall back on. That's interesting to me. It's telling because he was a risk taker, but he didn't want to ruin it all. Mm -hmm. uh, and that tells me how um, difficult stretching out into secular music was for a lot of performers. And this mm -hmm. reminds me of the tales that were told to us by the Chamber Brothers. So shout out to the Chamber Brothers and <laughs> also... Uh, for all those who would like to learn more, we have some great full interviews on the website uh, with uh, Willie and Joe, who talked about their upbringing in the gospel circuit and how difficult it was for them to even perform, not even doing secular music in the early days, but doing it in different venues like bars and honky tonks, where the people were, or the people were who needed to hear the message, according to Joe. Uh, so... I think it's important also to try to um, emphasize, um, empathize a little bit with what was happening around Sam when he was doing these things. And that's sort of the reason I wanted to give this background, because um, I think it was difficult. I think it was a challenge. And I think it was a huge surprise when he wrote a song called You Send Me that um, the producers of the television show, The Ed Sullivan Show, wanted him to come on and perform. That was a complete surprise to him. It was a great hit, but just the fact that he's getting exposure at that level, and as an African-American on a mostly white television program, um, although Ed Sullivan was great about doing that, there was just not many choices, I think, at that time. Uh, it was a big deal. It was a really big deal, and it was a great way to launch an incredible career. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Uh, well said. I also remember there's a little story uh, that just popped in my head as you were talking, Dan, about how I heard um, all these single women would uh, show up to church a little bit more often <laughs> when Sam was singing. <laughs> so, you know, it's their uh, covert way of getting more people to come into the church and listen <laughs> to Sam. <laughs> um, you know, but it, yeah, it, an incredible, An incredible... Um, history, I think, for sure. The Solsters, mm -hmm. uh, by the way, um, if you want to hear some of their tunes, there's many to choose from, but I would like to recommend a few. Um, 
touched the hem of his garment was one of the first ones I listened to with Sam on lead. Um, Jesus gave me water by and by father alone. Um, and of course, um, even in the sixties, after Sam was a well-established solo artist, he hired his compatriots, the Soulsters, to back him up on some of his recordings and some of his own, including the 1960s, uh, All I Need to Know. Um, and then there was another tune that's on uh, the top of my brain. Let me look at my notes real quick. Oh, that's Heaven to Me. That's a, one of my favorite tunes that Sam wrote that had the soul stirrers in the background even after his solo career. So he he didn't leave it. You know, he didn't leave it behind, which I think is important to say because I think that was important to him that mm -hmm. just because he's having these pop hits doesn't mean that he forgot about his roots. So by the way, um, the soul stirrers are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as early, early influences, and they're also in the Vocal Hall of Fame, which I think is really a testament to it wasn't just Sam that made them an influence, but certainly uh, he helped. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to say from speaking from a, another generation that's not in the 50s, 60s or 70s, uh, <laughs> listening to Sam, you I you know you can hear that you can hear the spiritualness of his voice and mm. the meaning of everything while he sings still to me and, and right. knowing and learning of that background, it makes perfect sense why some of those songs just sound, you know, almost otherworldly or heavenly, if you will. Hmm. Um, That's right. You I know. mean, pop music, you know, American pop music particularly has roots in gospel music. We all know that, but there were some individuals like Sam that made it extra clear. Yeah, like Aretha, I would say too, would be in that, mm -hmm. in that Absolutely. ballpark. Like, yeah. you just you feel like you're going to church no matter what they're singing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Amen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Uh, so we're going to get back into our podcast and listen to a little bit more of our interviews. Uh, coming up next, we're going to listen to actually two uh, musicians that toured with Sam, uh, actually toured with him. I think they were both together on the same tour. Um, one of the first interview we're going to hear is of Tommy Rowe, and he had a couple hits, including uh, Dizzy and Sheila, and um, also Chris uh, Montez, who had a hit, Let's Dance. And so they're going to talk a little bit just about touring with him and um, also kind of get, uh, give a little bit of an insight into some of the challenges uh, that Sam and other performers experienced while on tour, especially in the South. Um, it's just a, a very interesting uh, perspective and, and understanding of what's of what they had to kind of go through and deal with. So, uh, so we're going to start off with Tommy Rowe first, and then you're going to hear a little bit from Chris Montez. Sam Cooke was such a tremendous entertainer. I mean, just you know, being on tour with him, my first big tour, and learn it was a learning experience. It was weird because it was through the South during the early, and of course, the South was segregated in 1962. And so the one reason they had a white artist on all those tours was really the convenience of getting fed because they couldn't go in the restaurants. So actually, I was kind of like a runner. You know, they'd pull the bus down to park, you know, several streets down. And there were no McDonald's or Burger Kings, you know, no Holiday Inns, no, no, none like what we have today. It was all mom and pop stuff. 
So they'd park the bus down the street, and sometimes Chris would go. Even Chris had a hard time sometimes getting into restaurants. But they'd send me up to order food, and I would go in a little mom and pop restaurant and order like forty hamburgers. You know, they'd look at me like forty. I say, "Well, it's a fraternity stunt. You know, we're doing a fraternity." I always had some kind of. I had. I couldn't say I was buying it for the black troop. You know, they probably wouldn't have sold it to me. So I would get the hamburgers, go back to the bus, and. You know, they would all be happy with their burgers and fries and everything, and we'd go to the next gig. And I remember one night in Mississippi, they we got pulled over by the highway patrol, and they kind of did that all along during this tour. You know, they, they would like kind of, I don't know, they'd see a black troop, a bus, and they'd pull them over just to like harass them or something. And so this one night, we were we had to drive a long distance, so we left the gig and we drove all night to the next gig, and we ended up in Mississippi, and they pulled us over, and this uh, highway patrolman came on the bus with his flashlight, and I was sitting in the back, and he saw my white face among, he says, what's this white kid doing on the bus, you know? And so we had, we, they kept us there for hours, trying to, I tried to explain to him that I'm Tommy Rowe, I have the hit Sheila, and I'm touring with this troupe. And, they probably knew it, but they just were harassing, you know, because it was right in the middle of Martin Luther King and the whole protest thing that was going on. And it just wasn't something that was cool to do then. I mean, I got threats from the white public and the black public. The blacks were threatening me for being on the tour with the black troop. And then the whites, of course, were threatening me for other reasons. So towards the end of the tour, we had about we had a show in Nashville. And when we got to Nashville, I, I hooked up with Felton. He was living there, or thinking about moving there at that time. And he, and uh, my manager at the time, Bill Lowry, they pulled me off the tour. And I didn't do the show in Nashville. And I think there was about four or five more dates after that because it was getting kind of dangerous. And so, but that was uh, quite a learning experience. Because, you know, again, in my book, From Cabbage Town to Tinseltown, Cabbage Town is a little section of Atlanta Back then, it was a working class sector. It was a mill town. They had a mill there, cotton mill. And the people that lived in Cabbage Town worked in the mill. So it was a real working class neighborhood. But, you know, just a few blocks down the street was the black section of town. So, I mean, and we were really enduring the same reality. But just, you know, it wasn't across the tracks. It was just a few blocks down, you know. So I, ended up, I was playing with black kids all the time, you know. We played together. Uh, in the streets and you know played games so I never I never it was just a reality that I was born into of segregation so I didn't know anything different I mean that's just the way it was so my parents would be very unhappy with me playing with black kids but you know they were just kids in the neighborhood to me so that experience growing up the way I did in that environment and then being so happy to be on tour with Sam Cooke. I mean, I thought, my goodness, I listened to him on the radio, his great songs and all of this, you know, and here I am touring with this guy. And I never thought about the reality of segregation when I t accepted that tour. I mean, I just thought we were going out to sing, make music, you know. But boy, that was an eye-opener. That was a real eye-opener. And then, uh, of course, the following year, because I'd met Chris on, the, on Sam's tour, uh, Chris and I were booked in England to tour. We headlined a tour in England, our first trip to England in 1963, and that's when I met the Beatles. The Beatles were a featured act on our tour on the, in 1963. So one thing led to another. That's amazing. Yeah. Just to back up a second on, on Sam Cooke, did you see how, was he mistreated even though he was the star? Or was he treated just the same? Well, or? the blacks in the South, you know, it's not like, 
people think that they, it was all aggressive anger towards the black. It, was, it wasn't. I mean, we all got along. I mean, the whites and the blacks actually got along pretty well. But the reality was, as long as you stayed in your place, you know, that's, that's the way it worked. That was the tradition of the South. But uh, Sam was, you know, they, back then, a, a lot of white people didn't come to the shows. They're mostly black people. And so a few whites would be in the audience, but if they came, it was all segregated. I, another story I tell in the books, first time I saw Ray Charles was at Herndon Stadium in Atlanta. And uh, I thought, man, I gotta go see Ray Charles, you know? I was, I was a huge, I used to stay up late at night listening to black radio because you couldn't hear it in the daytime in the South, only late at night on radio. And so I would stay up all night listening to these stations and Ray Charles was just, uh, that was it, you know. So when he came to town, I thought, I'm going to that show. It's Herndon Stadium, Black College. And so I went with some friends, and when I got there, it was there was a chain-link fence down the middle of the stands. The black sat on one side and the white sat on the other side. And I thought, man, this is just a recipe for disaster here. I mean, I can see this coming, you know. And so there was a white crowd on one side and a black crowd. And I don't know if, you know, you remember, Ray Charles, what I say live? Well, that was when they cut that, I was at that show. So I was probably on record then before I made Sheila screaming, yeah, you know. <laughs> but um, sure enough, back got on into the show, on into his show towards the end of his show, and that chain link fence came down and there was a big riot. And my friends and I, we left, we got out of there. And I remember I used to go to the shows at the Atlanta Auditorium and, and the uh, white folks would sit on in the, in the balconies and the black folks would sit on the floor. And they was always throwing bottles and pop and at each other, you know. I mean, that's the reality we lived in during that period. It was just incredible. I mean, you think about it. That's why I like to, I wanted to bring it up in the book because I think young kids don't really understand how weird that was. I mean, they read about it, but I mean, living the reality of segregation was very weird. It was very strange. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your favorite memories of, um, of Sam Cooke? Oh, well, yeah, I, I, I used to love his song, you know, um, if you ever change your mind, you know, that tune, and he used to sing it to the girls. That's where I got my technique, singing to the girls, you know. Uh, and, and one time, you know, we go to these hotels, and uh, the drifters were on it, and a bunch of others. And I remember the drifters sitting on the balcony, you know, bunks in the bus, and these chairs were the most uncomfortable, <laughs> I was gonna say comfortable, <laughs> wooden chairs, you know. In the hotels we go in there, and there's yeah, I think the cockroach made cockroaches made the bed and all that, you know. <laughs> but it was it was it was a five star motel, <laughs> hotel or whatever. I'm just kidding. Anyway, and one time they said, "Well, her, uh, Sam Cook's looking for you." I said, "Oh, what did I do? I'm in trouble." And he said, "No, he's looking for you." So I'm standing out there, and we're in the field, we're ready to go. And Sam Cook comes up to me and he says, "Hey, Chris, how you doing?" I said, "Oh, hey, Sam, you know." And he said, I just want to talk to you. I want to personally talk to you. And I wanted to say, if there's anything you want, want from me or want me to do, let me know. Tell anybody. Wow, I said, oh, thank you, Sam. And that was a great honor for me. Because when we're on these tours, I had to get out and get food for these guys, you know, sometimes, because it was kind of rough. And I relate to that movie called The Green Book, because I saw black and white, never saw black and white. You know, where I grew up, never knew it existed, you know. So I had kind of funny feelings when going into a black or white restaurant, or I mean, uh, in restrooms even, you know. And I said, I wrote back one home one day and I said, I wish they had an in-between restaurants here, you know, or something, because I don't know which way, way to go, you know. 
but that was, and then I saw a lot of ugly things come down, you know, and uh, I just ignored it, you know, just, I can't, I sometimes, I was uh, kind of uh, feeling bad about he, the hu humanity, you know, how they treat one another, how we treat one another by colors or even how much money you have or how much money you don't have, and it's, and uh, it's kind of uh, sad, makes me sad, but, you know, that's life, you know. But I, I'm, I'm glad that I have a, a little bit, the Lord gave me wisdom to keep my mind open and just go on with my life, you know. I think Tommy Rowe was telling me that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You yeah, want to go yeah. to the restaurants and get the hamburgers out. Yeah. They'd say, why are you ordering 14 hamburgers? Yeah, right, right, right. But that's what you had to do to get them fed, I guess. Yeah, uh, well, senses. one time when I went into the restaurant, I ordered five hamburgers and, and the guys cooked it, okay. And, and then a couple of the guys in the group came in and they said, Chris, would you make those cheeseburgers? And he says, are they with you? I said, yeah. He just threw them together and said, here, get out of here. So that was my experience with that, you know. All right, you guys, that was the great Chris Montez. What a super human being he is. I just had <laughs> such a great time hanging out with him and talking about his career. And before that was Tommy Rowe, another one of the passionate singers of the 60s, who um, he was able to put in words some of the things I think is very important in the Sam Cooke story, and that is some of the struggles that African-American performers had during that time. So I'm really glad that we have that documented um, because it's an important element. It leads to some of the songs that he would later write, doesn't it? So mm -hmm. um, very, very compelling stuff. And so with that, let's talk a little bit about how his career progressed. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he, he had, I guess you could sort of argue a, sh a slightly shorter career than definitely what he could have had, but um, he, he definitely made it count. <laughs> mm. Got a lot um, done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That time frame. Just amazing to see what he did. Uh, but on top of being just an amazing performer and songwriter, he was also a savvy businessman. Um, and at that time, that was very, you know, very impressive for what he was able to accomplish. Uh, in 1961, he actually started his own label, uh, SAR. Um, and then later established a publishing imprint and management firm called CAGS. Um, and the SAR uh, label was not necessarily his label uh, that he was on, but he um, allowed it as kind of a platform for other uh, Black artists to be able to get those opportunities and to really um, say what they wanted to say and get that message out, um, especially of you know civil rights during the civil rights and um just gave them that that voice uh so that they could have that um message sent out um also i wanted to talk a little bit about he had two singles that were um released after his death um which was uh shake which was also the album that was released as well as a little song you might have heard of i don't know uh a change is going to come you guys heard about that, maybe? Sounds familiar. Sounds familiar. Maybe a little okay. bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and that definitely, uh, obviously, is a huge song and has meant so much to so many people, um, decade after decade of hearing it. It's been used and referenced in tons of films and TV. Uh, it was involved with the uh, Barack Obama presidential uh inauguration. Um, and I thought an interesting story about that was actually 
he's only ever performed that once on live TV. And that was on the Ed Sullivan show, or I'm sorry, it wasn't the Ed Sullivan show. It was the tonight show with Johnny Carson, I think. And uh, it was on February 7th, 1964, uh, which was two days before another huge musical (laughs) moment in life, (laughs) which would be the Beatles playing. So it got a little overshadowed, uh, but that was the only time he ever performed that uh, for an audience and live. Uh, and then he unfortunately passed away uh, soon after that. But he had a he um, he wrote that song based off of some personal experience that him and his wife had while trying to book a hotel, um, booking a reservation, showing up, and then being um, pushed away and saying that they were full. And so they had to go to another um, hotel and they were actually the uh, police were there waiting for them to arrest them because they had um, made some, you know, public uh, disorder, Mm. (laughs) disorderly conduct. Uh, So that was, that kind of was the catalyst for him writing that song. Mm. And he also pulled a lot from his, uh, from growing up and just things he had experienced. Um, So that's just, you know, one song of his, but such a meaningful song and and just a song that still lives on to this day and has just as much of an importance in society and in the civil rights movement today as it did when it first came out. Um, I just thought it was an interesting story of his background. And he was also a little, uh, I would say a little uncomfortable performing it, I think is uh, what he had mentioned, just because it was such a, he kind of referred to it as a very sad song but mm. it was something that really had to be said so um, well it represented a struggle didn't yeah. it and mm-hmm. and i think that that's uncomfortable for a lot of people and mm-hmm. and the messenger has to be um ready for that unacceptance and mm-hmm. i mm. think that its impact really didn't flourish until sort of the height of the, the civil rights movement and it, mm-hmm. even beyond. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, in the United States, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, um, as many of us know, there was another um, reminder of how there still is a struggle mm-hmm. and a change is going to come. The lyrics seem just as appropriate in 2020 as they did in 1964. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that has a lot to do with what Ashley, you just said, it was a personal experience that he was able to set to um, song that people like me could sing and maybe not relate to at the same level as other people, but still understand what that message is. I mean, yeah, I love insight. the opening line. I was born by a river in a little tent. And just yeah. like that river, I've been running ever since. Mm-hmm. I just, it's- that, does I that grab sh- you or what? It, you know, I um, still, no matter how many times I've heard that song, the beginning of it, I will always get chills. It's just such a beautiful, I mean, it's such a sad song, but it's such a beautiful song to, to hear. And it just grabs you immediately, like you mm-hmm. said. And not to overanalyze it, but, you know, there's different lines in there that kind of make you wonder, how is this connected? Like going to the movies and going downtown and, mm. okay. Mm-hmm. I get it. You know, he wasn't accepted everywhere he went, you know, mm-hmm. or going to his brother and being kicked down. Mm-hmm. I mean, holy moly. I mean, it's a very impactful tune. And I, I think I don't, 
necessarily understand all of what he was trying to convey. I can't pretend that I do, but I appreciate the fact that he tried so hard because it is an anthem and it is something that I feel like I can be a part of, at least uh, in my own world, because it's so impactful, because it was so emotional, and because it's so meaningful to all of those who don't want this struggle to continue anymore, or I'm tired mm-hmm. of it. Um, and so, so was he. And that was a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so a, a, an amazing song and, um, and done so very creatively, as you, as you pointed out. And I think another thing that you reminded me of, Ashley, was at the height of his career, he was a hero. You know, he was a hero to the gospel sect. He was a mm-hmm. hero to little African-American kids. He was a hero to musicians and songwriters. He was a hero. He mm-hmm. was a true hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was. Very well said, everyone. Really good <laughs> stuff. So let's jump back into some more interviews. Um, we're going to be hearing from the very energetic Jerry Blavitt radio personality. We got to sit down. Well, actually, it was virtual. We got a, a virtual interview with him uh, this past year. Um, And then after him, we're going to be hearing from the wonderful recording engineer, Al Schmidt, um, from his 2011 interview. And they're going to be talking about um, meeting Sam Cooke and what it was like to actually work with him. Um, So enjoy these NAMM oral history interviews on the Music History Project. Did you ever get to uh, meet Sam Cooke? Sam and I did a show together in Philadelphia at the State Theater. And as you know, Sam came from gospel and you know who took his place after he left, Lou Rawls and then Johnny Taylor, you know, uh, but Sam was impeccable. He would stand up there and Jerry Butler would tell you, he learned from watching Sam cook. And Sam would come out with, with silk black suit and the white all white shirt and the white tie man and just sing you, you send me, and the girls would go crazy, go crazy. I mean, I was invited and I couldn't go. You know, Bobby Darren opened up the opportunity for performers back in the day to work at the Copacabana. The Copa before Bobby was Sinatra, Sophie Tucker, uh, the big names, Sammy Davis Jr., big comedians, and they booked Jules Podell, booked Bobby Darren during the prom season. And he only booked him for the weekend because it was prom. Well, lines around the block. He wind up keeping Darren for two weeks. Walter Winchell, big headlines. You know, all of the big Earl Garner, big headlines. You know, what is this thing about? Fidel said, hey, let's start the book Rock and Roll. They booked Sam, but Sam died. He didn't make it. He, they canceled him because he just it didn't make it at that time, you know, because he had only you send me, uh, you know, a couple of songs, you know, uh, Shake. Uh, I mean, the songs that he did were amazing, you know, another Saturday night, you know, so, but Darren opened up that, but Sam was something. Well, I wanted to make sure we talked about one of my all-time favorites, and that's Sam Cooke. And I've just learned that he's one of yours, too. Sam is one of my all-time favorites. I had dinner with him the night he was killed. Uh, 
we had, uh, what had happened, I was Sam's engineer, and uh, Hugo and Luigi were the producers at RCA, and I was a, the engineer at RCA, and I did all the Sam and all the Saturday Night, and Cupid, and all those records. And uh, so Sam and I became friends, and, and Hugo and Luigi, I got a promotion to the A&R department at RCA, I became a producer. And uh, Hugo and Luigi left RCA to start uh, AFCO Records, another label. And so they were looking for somebody to produce Sam, and Sam said he wanted me, since we, I, I knew his style and we got along so well and all. So I started producing his records. I did the live album at the Copa. Uh, I did the Shake and a, a bunch of things. So we were, um, and he was one of my all-time favorites. He was, he had a great personality. He was spiritually an unbelievable human being. Uh, and in the studio, there was nobody like him. I mean, he just, his ears, and, and he wrote all those songs, and it was just wonderful. And his voice, it was just a gorgeous voice. And you put the mic up, and it just sounded beautiful. And, and uh, so we had done the, the Copa record and a, a few other things, put some stuff together, and finally we were, we were meeting at Martoni's and having dinner, and we were talking about the next album we were going to do. We were going to do a blues album. And uh, so we had this great dinner, and, and uh, then I left. I had to go see another act, and I told Sam that I would meet him at another club uh, that after I saw the act, I was going to a club called PJ's. And he said, great, I'll see you there. And, and that was it. And he went up to the bar, and I left and went to see uh, this act, a guy by the name of Stan Worth, at a little club called the African Queen. And then I went over to PJ's. And uh, he didn't show up, and it was about 1.30, and I left. I went home. Well, evidently, he got to the club about quarter of two with this girl that he had picked up at the restaurant after we had dinner. And, uh, and he wouldn't let him in. It was late. They were going to close it, too. And they said he was been drinking and they didn't want him in. So he left. Anyway, uh, I got a call at 5 o'clock in the morning from one of my dear friends, Lester Sill, who was the, uh, he was the head of Cold Gems. And he called me and he said, Al, uh, Sam's been shot. And I said, oh, my God. Uh, you know, when I started to get up, I said, you know, what hospital is he in? You know, I'll go. He said, no, no, he's dead. I said, oh, my God, it just broke my heart. And from that moment on, then the phone started ringing, and I was getting calls from London and uh, uh, from all the RCA people and so forth, wanting to know what happened, as if, you know, I was with him. When he got I said, I don't know what happened. My wife at that time was a reporter for a newspaper, and... Uh, she was able to get the police reports, so she was able to delve into exactly what happened or what they had in the police reports. So, you know, it's just one of those things, you know. Mistake of judgment. Mm. It was a horrible thing. Yeah, it was, because he was, he was just in his prime, mm. you know. Just in his prime. He was a handsome guy, and he, he was just an incredible dresser. He just... Everything about him was personable. He wrote. He was a good businessman. He he had everything. I mean, it was just, 
he would have been the next Nat Cole at that time. So the great, great part of that is that I had the uh, experience of being with him and spending a lot of time with him and becoming very close friends. And uh, you know, the sadness of the loss, of course, is uh, something I, you know, you never forget those things. But, but at least uh, there's CDs out, and uh, right. you know, people. Uh, I still get people all the time tell me Sam was their favorite artist. So, I always thought it was ironic that one of his last recordings was "Bring It On Home." Yeah, yeah. Did you feel that too? Uh, not really. Uh, no, I didn't. I didn't think about that. Bring It On Home was not one of his last recordings. It was done a little earlier. Oh, okay. So we did, I don't know, maybe two albums, a couple things after that. Okay. So, uh, but, but what a great song. What a great recording. And, um, the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just an amazing, amazing guy. So... And the Cobra album, I think, you know, he he did the show at the Cobra and all the mob guys were there and uh, and uh, he killed it, you know. He had worked there once before, maybe five years before, and stiffed. And so he, this time, worked up the show and I was there with him and we they worked up the show and we went up to the Catskills and did the show up there one time just to iron out any kinks and then came down to the Copa and did the Copa. And it was an amazing success. I mean, the people were tamping their feet and clapping and singing along. And, uh, you know, on Friday night, the mafia guys would be there with their girlfriends. And on Saturday night, they'd be there with their wives, you know. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was really funny. The, boy, you've had some amazing experiences. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, I've been really lucky. Blessed. All right, you guys, that was uh, one of our heroes amongst the NAM family, Al Schmidt, who we unfortunately lost a few months ago in early 2021. Um, but a remarkable career and a remarkable person. And um, I brought a CD uh, for Al to sign when I interviewed him of Sam Cooke's greatest hits. And he signed it and he said to Dan, this is one of my all-time favorite artists that I got to work with, Sam mm -hmm. Cooke. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I don't think he signs that every time, but maybe. <laughs> um, no, but you could hear in his voice that, you know, um, he was really choked up to be a part of the the last chapter of Sam's life, uh, knowing, mm -hmm. and knowing him at that time and, and seeing him the night uh, that he passed away on December the 11th, 1964. He was only 33 years old. Um, it's remarkable how he was able to cram in so much in those 33 years, almost mm -hmm. maybe uh, a foreshadowing of not being able to live much longer to give us anymore. Um, yeah. A tragedy for sure. Um, but what comes from it is an amazing legacy. We're still talking about him all these years later for a lot of great reasons. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I, I just, I listened to Al's voice and I think, you know, it was in, um, most of 1963 and the early part of 1964 that they wrapped up their last album together. Ain't that good news? Um, and then it was released in, I think, February of 1964. Um, 
and he passed away in December. Uh, not a lot of time to um, yield what um, or garnish from that all the success that that album and so many others had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sort of reminded of some of the lyrics. Um, I'm going to use my cheat sheet here because I tried practicing. I know these words backwards and forward, but if I don't read them, I'm going to start singing them and you do not want that. So um, plus I think it's impactful to hear it sort of as a poem. One of the last songs that he recorded, um, well, he performed, I should say, he originally recorded uh, Bring It On Home to Me in 1962, um, has lyrics that include, um, if you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind, baby, bring it, bring it on home to me, bring your loving, bring your sweet home, sweet loving, bring it on home to me. Now, the, the line that of course gets you when you realize, when you hear it after he passed away is, um, you know, I'll always be your slave till I'm buried, buried in my grave. Uh, but what's really great is, um, the, the classic Sam Cooke twist, which is you're listening to this song and the first four stanzas, you're thinking, okay, this guy's begging for forgiveness, wants his woman back, misses her, you know, wants to continue this love. But there's this great line at the end that says, uh, well, and he even says one more thing. I tried to treat you right, but you stayed out. You stayed out late at night. So yeah, I love that twist. Um, I think that the power of his words, I think, are can be funny. I mean, Cupid, there's some great funny words in, in that one. Uh, Wonderful World has is, is got some great lines in there. Um, but the other one I really wanted to share with you is one I mentioned early, earlier that was a gospel tune that he wrote um, called That's Heaven to Me. I'm just going to read this one, the first line. Um because I think that um, to me, when I was listening to this song and watching the record go around, uh, I can still remember trying to read, you know, written by Sam Cooke as it went around my 45 player, um, was just how um, positive his outlook was about life. Um, A flower that blooms in May, a lovely sunset at the end of the day, someone helping a stranger along the way, that's heaven to me. Mm. And I, I love that because you, you can be spiritual without going to church, right? By mm-hmm. appreciating what's around you. And I think mm-hmm. that that was a message that young Dan Del Fiorentino really absorbed. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciated that. And, and so as we are thanking Sam for what he did, I wanted to pass that along because that has always been meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it goes back to what I was saying a little earlier, where you feel like you go to church when you hear him sing. And I think that there are a handful of artists that are able to capture that um, and, and kind of really bring that um, spiritual, not necessarily church, but just like having that spiritual connection to music. Uh, definitely. And he definitely had that. Um, I also, you know, speaking a little bit of what you just said, I would argue that chain uh, chain gang kind of has a similar uh, thing where it's like, it's a little bit of an upbeat tempo, but once you start reading the lyrics, you're like, Oh, this is something <laughs> not upbeat at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, yeah, that's and again, right. just kind of having that, um, the play on words and, uh, you know, happy beat to a not so happy message. Right. Well, like sad mood, you know, mm-hmm. that is a very simple lyric, um, but it's, it's amazing how soulful he performs it. Mm-hmm. I was going to read those lyrics, but I realized really what's missing is him. And I think that that leads into a couple of recommendations, if I might be so bold, because in addition to the songs that he wrote, he was a singer of popular songs. And he he recorded all kinds of stuff from the early 50s hits, um, you know, things that you wouldn't necessarily expect him like Bally High and things like that. Um, but he there's two songs of his that are the most meaningful to me of ones that he didn't write. One is Nobody Knows the Trouble That I've Seen. Um, just because it is so soulfully sung that you can't help but just be um, affected by it. Mm-hmm. And the other is a song that sort of took me by surprise. Uh, most of us have heard the 1956, I might have gotten this year wrong, the Platters uh, singing group that was very popular uh, in the doo-wop era, uh, era uh, had a, a big hit called The Great Pretender. And I know that song. I've heard it on the oldies. I've heard it, you know, um, Happy Days and, you know, all of that stuff growing up. Uh, But I don't think I really paid attention to the lyrics until Sam Cook sang it. And he slowed it down. Not quite a dirge, but he just took every word, every word and made it his own. It's the same, same song that the Platters sang, but it's not the same song at all. And um, if if you want a, a mournful tune when you are feeling a little low, um, nothing will connect you like that song, in my opinion. It's just unbelievable. And that's a, another side of his talent that's worthy of mentioning is that it didn't have to be his words. It didn't have to be his music. He could make just about anything his song. Oh, yeah. And I think anybody that tries to sing some of his songs, it's it's hard not to try to emulate him. No one can quite do that, I don't think. But it's, it, you know, you can't take a Sam Cooke song and, and rearrange it. It just doesn't... It has that that stamp on it, I think, that's Sam Cooke, and you kind of have to, to sing it in that way and play it in that way. <laughs> well, speaking of singing Sam Cooke songs, we have <laughs> one interview left to show you. Um, this is Deacon John Moore ending the podcast in the best way possible, performing a little bit of Any Day Now. So here is Deacon John Moore. The one... I sing at a lot of funerals is a song that Sam Cooke did years ago called Any Day Now. And it, uh, the words, you know, uh, just really get to people, you know, because the words go like, uh, one of these mornings I'm going away. Any day now I'm going to heaven to stay. Maybe morning, night or noon, but I'm going to see the Father and by 
his side, I'll stand. There'll be no more sorrows, no sadness, just only complete gladness. But any day, I know that I, know that I, I'm going home, then I'll shout hallelujah, and your praises, your name, but oh, any day, I know that I, know that I, am going home. All right, that was the Deacon, Deacon <laughs> John Moore singing Any Day. Um, and I just wanted to say that being right next to Deacon when he sang that song was one of the most powerful moments of my career as an interviewer, without a doubt, and you can tell why. So thank you all for joining us and allowing us to remember the great Sam Cooke. Yes, and we will be back again in two weeks with a brand new episode. Special reminder, if you'd like to see the full video versions of this podcast, you can always head to nam.org slash library slash podcast to see our full video podcast. And until two weeks from now, bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Music History Project. This has been Mike Mullins, Dan Del Fiorentino, and Ashley Allison. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes and leave us some feedback. If you have recommendations for future episodes, just shoot us an email at library at nam.org. 